Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of M's Drive-In. I'm your host Emily, bringing you into the exciting world of cinema, with some behind-the-scenes facts and everything you need to know about some of the best artists in the business. Today's episode is all about the stellar filmography of Richard Brooks. I hope you all enjoy, and let's get right to it. Before we dive into the films, we're going to go ahead and take a look at Richard Brooks's directing style. Brooks was always really adamant about exploring dysfunctional relationships between characters. And a lot of these characters used addiction as a form of a crutch, as a coping mechanism to help them make sense of their dysfunctional relationships and their dysfunctional settings. Many of the characters in his films also appear to be somewhat aimless at times. And they are aimless because they are responding to a lot of their trauma and they use this response to dictate their attitudes and behaviors in very unhealthy ways. They're very broken and vulnerable and they often have to face what they don't want to in order to heal, but they do so in very destructive ways that don't seem to benefit them at first. And those benefits that they experience come from the outcome of what they learn and how they're able to grow. And it's a really huge part of their healing process as people and as individuals and how that healing process is such a great way for them to be able to integrate themselves back into those dysfunctional relationships in order to heal those relationships and make those dynamics become more fruitful and more worth their while. The first movie we are going to talk about today is Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. This movie was written by Richard Brooks and James Poe and was based on the stage play by Tennessee Williams. This movie was directed by Richard Brooks. This film is about a man named Brick who is played by Paul Newman, who is an alcoholic ex-football player who drinks his days away and resists the affections of his wife Maggie, played by Elizabeth Taylor. A reunion with his terminal father jogs a host of memories and revelations for both father and son. The themes of this movie are sexual desire, superficiality, and repression. According to the article Kiss Me or Kill Me, Sexual Desperation and Identity Erasure in Cat in a Hot Tin Roof, written by Roxana Hadidi for BrightWallDarkRoom.com, the article states, Taylor and Newman in a bedroom together where they share nearly all their scenes in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof are combative and ferocious and profoundly erotic. They yell at each other, they throw things, they're trapped in a manipulative game of cat and mouse, attraction and repulsion tied together, battling each other for dominance, each one attempting to dictate the terms of their marriage. This quote leads us into the theme of sexual desire. Maggie does everything she can to become quote-unquote available for Brick. She doesn't feel she is of much use if she is tossed to the side. And that is a huge part of where the cat and the mouse trope come into play. Maggie is able to play a lot with Brick's emotions before destroying them. In a lot of ways, both Brick and Maggie do lust for each other, but at the same time they can't stand each other. And it's this unhealthy dance that they are able to create around their emotions. Because at the end of the day, they won't actually address what's hurting them. They'll only use each other's emotions against each other to get what they want. An example of this in the film is when Maggie brings up Brick's relationship with his friend Skipper. Maggie knows that that is a sore subject, but uses Brick's grief over the loss of his friend as a way for him to desire her because she equates vulnerability with having sex. 
Brick is a person that is grieving the man he once was after going through an injury where he breaks his leg. And his injury symbolizes his brokenness over never going back to the man he once was. And through his relationship with Skipper, that is his way of reflecting his glory days as the man that he wants to become again. He also uses alcohol as a crutch because he says he likes himself a lot more when he drinks. He wants to be able to become numb and not feel anything at all. Because if he feels something, Maggie will challenge that. And it's clearly obvious that Brick does not have the energy to go up against Maggie's affections and Maggie's desires for love when he feels that he has no love to give her. The article continues to state, We occupy the same cage, that's all. Maggie spits at her husband, seconds after she tries to seduce him. Moments later, he'll attack her. They can't live with each other, and they can't live without each other. She's either trying to seduce him, or cursing him, or resolutely defending him. And those varying moods inform a complicated character whose understandings of love and hate are closer together than they are apart. This quote leads us into the theme of superficiality. When we think of superficiality, we think of a lack of thoroughness, depth of character, or serious thought, or the fact of never thinking of something as serious or important. With that being said, superficiality is the basis of what Brick and Maggie's relationship is dependent on throughout most of this film. They come from a family that is wrapped up in lies in order to protect themselves. And because they lie to protect themselves, they come across as very disgenuine with their emotions and the way that they're able to attempt at showcasing their love and affection for each other and for their family. An example of this is when Brick's father, Big Daddy, becomes ill. Everyone believes that he will live when in reality his sickness is terminal. The only commonality they have as a family is being in the same space with each other while their forms of communication are completely fractured. An example of this in the film is Brick and Big Daddy's relationship. Brick feels owned by his father and has expressed never feeling genuinely loved by his family. And Big Daddy wants his children to have children to carry on his name. And it's this idea of how manufactured generations and relationships are the only way that Big Daddy knows how to keep his family afloat rather than having a genuine connection with each other. Which creates a very blurred line between love and hate because they are constantly between this dysfunctional patriarchy that keeps bringing children into this world to carry on a name that doesn't have a significant meaning because nobody really wants to genuinely connect with each other. They don't really know what love or hate really means in regards to the dynamic of their family structure. And they talk to each other to get their point across without really listening to each other. The article continues to state, and so on screen, William's favorite work on the page retains its explorations of consuming greed and moral indifference, of inescapable death and patriarchal decay, but it switches its focus from repressed sexuality to lost masculinity. This quote leads us into the theme of repression. When we think about repression, we think of a use of force to restrict and control a society or group of people. Big Daddy represses his family's emotions to his liking. He is the one that dictates the happenings of their interactions by telling them how much or how little of their emotions they can show. With that being said, Brick, Maggie, Brick's siblings, Brick's mom, they all want something for their own benefit. 
And an example of this is the big question of, well, when Big Daddy dies, who will get what? Who will get the most? Who is considered the favorite of the group? Favoritism is also another theme that we can consider in this film because it runs deep in everyone in the family structure. They all want to please and be the quote-unquote top dog of the patriarchy. And they are willing to abandon all sense of self to achieve a status in this patriarchy. In a lot of ways, men can't really be quote-unquote men if they don't live up to their father's expectations. And Brick feels the weight of that on his shoulders. He used to be this up-and-coming football player that got all of the awards and all of the accolades. And then he went through this really horrific injury that put him out for the count. And now he has a broken leg and he's on crutches and he can't give as much as he wants to or a lot because he can't really get around the way that he wants to. So in a lot of ways he does feel that weight, he does feel that pressure of wanting to make his family proud and wanting to be the kind of man that he strived to be before. And it's that loss of self that he feels like he can only regain if he receives his father's love and if he receives his father's affections then he will be at the center of this patriarchy and maybe he won't really feel the need to repress a lot of these feelings and these emotions anymore because he will be heard. And what's really interesting about the ending of this film is the way that the theme of repression is completely subverted. Maggie undermines these feelings by pretending she is pregnant in order to bring Brick upstairs so they can make love together. And they both are in a position by the end of the film where they are really fulfilling an impulsive desire to love by using these disingenuous emotions for physical attraction. Because at the end of the day, Brick isn't the favorite. He's not the number one top man in Maggie's eyes or in his father's eyes. He's just an ordinary, down-and-out kind of guy that needs some kind of sustenance to be able to survive. And Maggie is able to give that to him, but only through a physical kind of attraction. And in a lot of ways, she does carry that dead weight because the love that they have for each other is not genuine. They're just there for each other to fulfill a need for each other. And at the end of the day, that is what they have to learn to live with. Next up, we have The Happy Ending. This movie is written and directed by Richard Brooks and is about a middle-aged woman named Mary, who is played by Jane Simmons, who walks out on her husband, Fred, played by John Forsythe, and her family in a desperate attempt to find herself. The themes of this movie are idealized relationships, self-destruction, and the American dream. According to the article, Rediscovering the Happy Ending, a movie about the dreams and disillusions of marriage and the movies written by Richard Brody for the New York Times, the article states, The shudderingly impassioned, history-jangled, cinema-centric drama The Happy Ending from 1969 reflects vast changes in Hollywood and in American society, and even nudges them ahead. What's more, it does so aesthetically, with startlingly expressive images and performances that fuse with the action to reflect on and advance the state of movies themselves. This quote leads us into our first theme of idealized relationships. Mary is a person that reflects on the idea of marriage through classic movies like Father of the Bride with Spencer Tracy and Elizabeth Taylor and Casablanca with Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman. 
The examples shown in these kinds of films reiterates that the movie The Happy Ending itself makes a conscious commentary on how history of storytelling can reflect the concept of quote-unquote perfectionism when it comes to marriage, especially between a husband and a wife. As a society, we are very good at believing what we see, and Mary is the type of person that is captivated by the romanticism of relationships. She is purely in it for that pure bliss of being connected to a person, but in reality, she has to confront a lot of the destructive ways that her relationship has gone downhill. She connects with Fred through sex and nothing else, and they know how to get to the core of their issues physically but not emotionally and this leaves Mary to feel very unfulfilled and drained because she only wants what she sees in the movies. And if we're going back to the concept of how movies are able to paint a picture of real life, this film does exactly that and how the script basically calls out other films for being unrealistic. And this movie does an excellent job of painting a better portrait of how Mary's sadness and unfulfillment affects the rest of her family. The article continues to state, in Brooks' view, these rigid manners and the rigid mores and romantic archetypes of the Hollywood movies that they embody and embellish come off as obsolete vestiges of times that, though recent, are already on the far side of a historical divide. In the happy ending, these deeply internalized formalities nonetheless silently shriek with long-stifled frustration and emotion. This quote leads us into the theme of self-destruction. Mary's realization of not getting the media version of romance leads her into these spiral of feelings that she has hidden for most of her marriage. And because of this, she does become numb to her surroundings, and she chooses to disassociate as a way of stepping into her own and learning how to be a better version of herself as an individual. Becoming destructive and impulsive with her actions at the end of the day really is her only form of being real with that grief of losing the typical kind of relationship that she so desperately wants to keep intact. And that archetype is clearly a motive that she has seen through film and through the media. Abusing alcohol is another factor, and really the only factor of her life that she has control over. Similar to Brick and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, she also is somebody that doesn't know how to commit to a partner that doesn't value her wants and needs as an individual. The article continues to state, It involves a deft resolution of conflicting desires and dreams, an imagining of new possibilities that doesn't entirely reject her former illusions. Like Brooks, Mary doesn't exactly spurn grand cinematic romanticism. Rather, she questions it and refashions it to serve her own purposes. This quote leads us into the theme of the American dream. When we think of the American dream, we think of equal opportunities for every American. Mary wants to have the same type of romance as whatever the media portrays, and she dreams of living a romanticized lifestyle. And when we think of romanticism, we think of a form of subjectivity with an emphasis on individualism. And Mary is a person that spends so much time obtaining certain beliefs centered around her relationships that they aren't realistic to her everyday life. And by taking time for herself, that really does help her realize that she deserves to romanticize her own self-care over her unrealistic goals that she wants out of her relationship. And in a lot of ways, this movie does a really great job 
of showcasing how being fed by a media perspective for so long can dull your senses. Because society is tied down by those unreasonable expectations, which is why they want to disassociate themselves from the real world. Mary has to be able to go through a period of realizing that the American dream is a myth before confronting her alcoholism. It's those lies of what she wants out of a media perspective that leads to her own self-destruction. And that is a huge part of what the ending of this film represents. Mary asks Fred, if right now we were not married, if you were free, would you marry me again? And this leaves a great level of ambiguity for the audience. Because it asks this lingering question of, would they take that chance and build a new relationship that isn't idealized? Or do old habits die hard? If they were really able to be together again, would they spiral into the same hole that they did before? Or would they build a foundation that really honors their toughest moments as much as they try to honor and celebrate their better moments? Because at the end of the day, relationships take work. They take communication. They take commitment. You can't just be served something on a silver platter and expect it to be grand and expect it to work the way that you want to. And the media really does undermine those values and makes people think that being romantically linked is always easy and fixable. When at the end of the day, it's really about what you actively have to sacrifice to make your partnership work, especially in a society that is fed by a lack of realism. Again, what I love about this movie is that it does such an amazing job of calling out classic films for their misgivings as far as how they're able to create stories that are centered around unrealistic expectations. And I think that this film is a really amazing example of how the generations have completely shifted from the 50s to the late 60s and going into the early 70s. Because you can clearly see that it is more about people taking time for themselves in order to come back and really be the best version of themselves that they can for their partner. And that is exactly why I love the ambiguity of the ending of this particular film. Because it leaves room for the audience to interpret how they would go about addressing their own relationships and addressing the hardships within those relationships without that type of message being completely shoved in their faces. Now moving on to some fun facts. For Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. This movie was originally to be filmed in black and white, as was the standard practice with artistic movies in the 1950s. Virtually all movie adaptations of the plays of Tennessee Williams had been in black and white up to that time. However, once Paul Newman and Dame Elizabeth Taylor were cast in the leads, writer and director Richard Brooks insisted on shooting in color, in deference to the public's well-known enthusiasm for Taylor's violet and Newman's striking blue eyes. Due to the musicians' union strike, the movie lacks a traditional musical score composed especially for this movie. Instead, a canned score comprised of pre-recorded pieces from the MGM Music Library is used. Most of the music, including the evocative main theme, was originally composed by Andre Previn for MGM's Tension. After the sudden death of her husband, Dame Elizabeth Taylor developed a severe stutter when speaking normally. However, when she spoke on screen in the southern accent of Maggie, it had luckily abated. This film was nominated for six Oscars. 
Paul Newman for Best Actor in a Leading Role, Elizabeth Taylor for Best Actress in a Leading Role, Richard Brooks for Best Director, Richard Brooks and James Poe for Best Screenplay Based on Another Medium, William H. Daniels for Best Cinematography, and Best Picture. For the Happy Ending Gene Simmons has said that the film was a very painful one for her, as she herself was having problems with alcohol at the time. According to Simmons, her then-husband Richard Brooks wrote the film especially for and about her. He hoped that playing Mary might help her to more clearly see her own problems. Gene Simmons was nominated for Best Actress in a Leading Role for her performance in this film. The cast of the film includes two Oscar winners, Shirley Jones and Teresa Wright, and two Oscar nominees, Gene Simmons and Bobby Darin. Now moving on to some movie recommendations. First up, we have the film Husbands. This is a movie that John Cassavetes wrote, directed, and starred in with Ben Gazzara and Peter Falk, and it is another really great character study kind of a film. Cassavetes was always really great at capturing human moments, moments that never really seem scripted or forced, and Husbands is such a great example of that kind of storytelling. Everything about the film, everything about the dynamic of the characters just felt very natural and felt very in the moment. And there were times throughout the whole entire film that certain scenes felt a lot more intense than other scenes depending on where the characters were at mentally and how they were able to relate to each other in the physical space that they were in. And Cassavetes is just such a great artist in the sense that he is really great about capturing a present moment and capturing a present emotion and there isn't really anything preconceived about the way that he directs or the way that he writes and the way that he acts and you really see that come through in the way that he interacts with Peter and Ben in this film. Next up we have Peter Falk and John Cassavetes and Mikey and Nikki. Again we have another really great character dynamic character study type of movie. This is a movie that Elaine May wrote and directed and it's such a really heartbreaking story about these two friends who are being chased by the mob and one of them is trying to protect their friend and one of them is basically trying to run from them because he's in trouble with the mob. And Peter and John, I think because they were such great friends in real life, they really did a great job of bringing that personal friendship to the screen through their acting. And their chemistry was just off the charts and the intensity of this film was just on point and it made for such a great character-driven film. Last but not least, we have Lucille Ball and Henry Fonda in Yours, Mine, and Ours. I saw the remake of this film many years ago, but never got a chance to see the original until a couple weeks ago, and I'm really glad that I got my hands on the original version of this film because Lucille Ball and Henry Fonda have really great chemistry with each other. And seeing a big family film in the late 60s definitely has a different energy to it than a lot of the family films that are coming out today. I think in a lot of ways there's just a great camaraderie between the cast and there's a great camaraderie between the children in the cast and their characters were also very vivacious and full of life and very vivid and the chemistry, the characters, the writing really did jump off the screen because of how great and fun and family friendly the movie was. 
As our time together comes to an end, I just want to thank everyone for tuning in to M's Drive-In. I'm your host, Emily, bringing you into the exciting world of cinema with some behind-the-scenes facts and everything you need to know about some of the best artists in the business. Keep an eye out for our next episode on the amazing collaborations between Richard Keene and Kim Novak.